Our reading is from Mark, and it's chapter 1, verses 21 to 39, and it's on page 1002. Chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left their synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out demons, but he would not let let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is God's word. Katie, thank you. Uh, Evening, uh, everyone. My name is Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Uh, be lovely to do so. Uh, but uh, most will be the church family. And um, if you've been following through Mark's gospel, you could easily think, hold on, we had that reading last week. Why are we getting the same reading twice? Um, because you're slow. Uh, no, no. Um, because if you were here last week, we said uh, verses uh, 21 to 39, it's one day in the life of Jesus, 24 hours. It's his Jack Bauer uh, chapter of the Bible. And um, we, uh, last time, somewhat eccentrically, we focused on the last few verses, uh, his priority, which was to preach, but that seemed like a fitting passage to look at as we sent off the gang to St. Augustine's. Uh, This evening, we're looking at the first block of uh, this same day, thinking mostly about his authority, and mostly this evening, we're thinking about driving out demons. Let's pray as we do that. Our great God and Father, thank you 
that in the scriptures you give us everything we need, even if we don't recognize it. Father, help us rightly understand what was going on in these incidents as Jesus walked the earth, so that we know what we're meant to do with them today, how we're meant to read them, understand them. Father, we ask this not because we want knowledge, although that is useful. We ask it because we want to know you. We want to know the Lord Jesus. We want to trust him and love him. Do that work, we pray, this evening in his name. Amen. Now, uh, one man who's featured quite a lot in the news, and uh, Patrick, we may have him up uh, um, for his, uh, well, allegedly um, uh, abusive behavior, but um, uh, more and more names and people seem to come out. Is that of Russell Brand? And um, perhaps one of the least surprising names to come up in a sort of era of Me Too, perhaps. But um, here's an interesting headline. So uh, Channel 4 and uh, the Sunday Times newspaper, the ones that mainly drove the investigation, this was in the Sunday Times, uh, an interview with Nadia, that's name changed. But it's a very striking headline. Russell Brand accuser. He's saying one thing, and I know the demon underneath it. And if you uh, have read or, or go online and read the, the interview, uh, she's not using that metaphorically, actually. <laughs> she says that when he abused her, it was as if he was possessed. His eyes glazed over and it was as if another person took hold. I mean, she is literally using it in the sense of demonic, satanic, evil spirits. What do you make of that? In the West, in the 21st century, that isn't super common language for us to use. But I introduced that because when you come to Mark's gospel, it's completely unavoidable language. More than any of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is concerned to illustrate, tell us about Jesus' encounters with the demonic evil spirits. And I've read plenty about it in the last few weeks. And most people don't really want to talk about it. And in the West, you know, the commentators sort of go, anyway, there's this. But next thing he did was this. Uh, and they just move on. I mean, it's a bit different if you read literature from Latin America, parts of uh, West Africa in particular, much more open. But in the West, we get a bit nervous, I think, still, by these sort of encounters. But let me remind you, if you're a Christian, or, or just to point out to you if you're not, Christianity is a supernatural faith. It isn't just a set of statements you sign up to. When you become a Christian, you move from one kingdom, darkness, Jesus would describe it as, to another one, his kingdom. He sends his spirit to live within you, to supernaturally change you. It's a supernatural faith. Now, in the rationalist West, we sometimes sort of pare it down and make it, try and fit it into our boxes. Yeah, Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't make him fit. It's very different. When you join the kingdom of Jesus, it's not 
uh, well, you know, last election I voted, whatever, Labour, and this time round I might vote Tory, and then probably in a few years' time I'll go back to Labour. I said, we're in this camp, and then I go to this camp, or last time it was the Lib Dems, probably Green this time, that's more concerning. Who knows what I'll do in the future? There I go, there I go. No. <laughs> you don't move. I mean, this is still insufficient, but it's closer to someone flees and manages to escape North Korea to the south. That is a dramatic change of regime from a self-absorbed dictatorship to a imperfect but functioning healthy democracy. That is pretty radical. You don't go back. Not once you've experienced the freedom. You don't go back. Now, becoming a Christian is closer to that. You belong to Jesus. You don't go back. And the change that he has wrought, bringing you out of one kingdom and into his, is completely dramatic. And the unfamiliarity of some of this language is, I think, designed for us today (laughs) to make us think, whoa, is that, what? What's happening here? Yeah, yeah. You've been liberated from bondage to a power that you could never free yourself from. That's what Jesus has done to you. That's what he's done for you. That's the point being made, that Jesus came to deliver people from bondage to a power, taken from a wicked regime to one that is good and kind. So the Bible has lots of ways of describing the human condition, and you get lots of them in, in, in Mark's gospel. We are rebels who have rejected God's authority, and we need to repent of that, yeah? And come back and recognize him as king. Yeah, that's true. And we are idolaters who love the wrong things too much. We love career too much, ourselves too much, money too much, and we need to stop doing that and recognize that we only function well when the Lord is first in our hearts and we love him most. That's true. And naturally all of us are in bondage to evil power that we could never liberate ourselves from and we need Jesus to do that. That also is true. And that's what we're looking at here. Now, uh, you could easily say, well, what is as strong as it is? Look, actually, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, and this is a bit weird, and uh, uh, I'm certainly not evil and certainly not enslaved by any evil power. And look, I've been a Christian for 25 years, but I can't remember a time I was enslaved by an evil power. Okay, we, we may not recognize it, but it's still true. You can live in North Korea and not realize how bad it is until you're, you're set free. Or uh, my um, son is traveling at the moment, on a gap year, and is interrailing around Europe. And uh, last week, I think I may mention this, but last week he, he, he went to Auschwitz and he placed something on his vlog. He's got a, he and his mate that he's traveling with, they've got a vlog of their travels. We don't have access to it. Why would you want your parents to see such a thing? But I know his mates, and sometimes his mates say, oh, this is interesting what Nathan was doing. Oh, tell me, I'd like to know. Um, <laughs> but uh, so he's got a vlog. Anyway, he'd put something suitably, so I'm told, suitably sober about, oh, I went to Auschwitz. Golly. Everyone should. It's horrific. Something like that. Um, anyway, one of his friends over here uh, got in touch. This much got back to me. Um, and said, I could never do that. Uh, my heritage is Polish. 
And um, I know it's known in our family that we were collaborators, or my great-great-grandparents were collaborators. Um, not all were. I mean, there was some resistance, but, you know, lots were culturally. And um, it's difficult. And I don't know how I'd feel about that, going and thinking my family was part of that. I mean, they weren't horrifically evil people. Right? It's not Heinrich Himmler. <laughs> you know, they're not sending the whole thing up. But to save their own lives went along with it, collaborating with evil. They're under, they were, you know, in the 40, 1940s, they were under a regime. They were part of a regime. They didn't like it particularly, but they were part of this regime involved in evil. Well, naturally, that's you and me. We may not be horrific. I don't think anyone here is, to my knowledge. But... Um, uh, we're under, naturally, until you become a Christian, what the Bible would say, you belong to, well, the devil's regime. You're resistant to God. Yeah, well, I'm not an evil person. No, 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 no. You just belong to his world. You belong to his regime. And you can't be free. You need Jesus to liberate you. The Bible insists we're all in bondage to a power greater than ourselves. We're on the wrong team naturally we don't like that perhaps that's offensive it's just I'm sorry that's the way the Bible describes it for most of us who are Christians here tonight oh that was years ago yeah but these verses are here to say do you realize quite how dramatic what has happened to you is we're going to work through it like this Jesus then, he has authority over evil. More briefly, he has compassion over, on the sick. But then we'll get back to his teaching sets people free. Okay? He has authority over evil, which is uh, 21 to 28. He has compassion on the sick. His teaching sets people free. Let's, um, let's work through it. First then, uh, this uh, first section, verses 21 to 28. Uh, he has, Jesus, authority over evil. Now, uh, before we get to the detail of it, lots of times in Mark's gospel, it's a bit of a tangent, but lots of times in Mark's gospel, you have to know how he writes. He likes, he quite often writes, in a sort of sandwich structure. Not a posh sandwich, not a prep wrap, where everything's sort of nicely wrapped up. Your basic, dull sandwich. Bread, filling, bread. Okay, that's how he likes to operate. Lots of times he writes stories like that. And you need to know it, because otherwise it's like, oh, he's talking about this. Now he's talking about something completely different. And now he's back to this, and what on earth is going on there? That you have to hold this together. So in our section uh, here, it's on the sheets, or Patrick may uh, throw it up for us. Um, in this little section, you get that people are amazed at his teaching with authority. Then we go to the driving out of an evil spirit, what on earth? And then you come back, amazed, teaching, authority. So it's not that uh, Mark is writing, he said, oh, Jesus was, uh, was teaching, and then this really annoying bloke and came along over here, he was heckling and making a noise. Anyway, Jesus sorted that out, and then he went back to his teaching again. And this is a bit of a distraction over here. Rather, and this is how all the sandwich, section work, sandwich sections work, Jesus was teaching with authority. Now let's zoom in to see what impact that has. It delivers people from evil. Yes, let's back zoom out. Because that's what happens when he teaches with authority. You have to hold it all together. Let me reread it. They went to Capernaum, that's Jesus and his first four disciples. And uh, when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. 
The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? And you teaching him with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Okay. Just a few, try and clear a few things um, of ground clearing. Was this normal in the first century? Is this what you just did? What are you doing at the weekend? Oh, I'm going to the synagogue and drive out a demon and then go for a drink at the pub, just you know, like last weekend. Uh, is this what all religious teachers did? No, do notice here, they, or the people, the onlookers go, wow. That's not normal. This wasn't normal. Um, they were amazed. Now, that's, sort of, that's okay as a translation, but there's a danger we think, um, oh, that's lovely. Hey, you look amazing tonight. Great dress you're wearing. Hey, I had an amazing game of uh, squash the other day. That would be prosaic and dull. Uh, it's more shocked, stunned. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit nervous about this. Whoa, what, what is that? Who is this? Sort of amazed. Okay? That's the sense of it. But was this normal? No. No, this wasn't normal in the first century. This was unusual. That's how Mark records it. Uh, secondly, is this normal today? No, I don't think so. It is more evident in ever other cultures. You travel, particularly acutely, I think, Latin America some parts East West Africa, much more openness to the demonic occult. So these things are perhaps a little more common, but nothing like this, nothing like this. Because when Jesus comes, he is God's king. And as this, this guy recognizes, sorry, this guy, the, the, the demons within him say, they recognize who he is. Uh, verse 24, what, have you, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I've recorded, this bottom of the sheet, if you can take it away, uh, the other prominent demonic encounters that are recorded in Mark. And again, they, they recognize who he is. You're, you're from God. You've come to destroy us. Get away from me. I don't have anything to do with you. They know who he is. There's something when Jesus arrives, the one who is going to conquer evil, he just, who, everything, everything hostile and evil is drawn to him because they need to beat him. They need to attack him. See if this works. Depends what your um, like in films is. But uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings, the last book, the last film, Aragorn is the king. He is Isildur's heir. And back generations ago, Isildur had defeated the evil one, Sauron. And so Sauron doesn't like this lineage. So as soon as Aragorn appears and prominently says, right, I'm going to attack Sauron's castle, Mordor, all of a sudden, all evil is drawn to him. So everything, I'm throwing everything, every orc, uh, all of them, they all go, um, um, I mean, look, look, it's hard to do an orc when you're this pretty, right? Um, 
Um, yeah, yeah don't, don't heckle and say not that hard. No heckling. Um, uh, but they're all drawn to him. And so it's Frodo can sort of sneak in and get rid of the ring. Because, hold on, this is the king who could defeat me, says Sauron. Get him. Or uh, if you're a bit younger, um, you know, Harry Potter uh, and the, uh, the, the final, you get to the final book, and, uh, which goes on a long time. But anyway, you get to the final bit of the final book and uh, he's invaded, Voldemort has attacked Hogwarts. What does he care about? He only cares about one person. Harry Potter. And, you know, I could have done that. I could have done that voice. You know, CGI face. I could have done millions. Of Harry Potter. Um, why does he want the one? There's only one person he cares about. He's the one who can defeat him. The one who's going to, and he knows that. Why does Jesus attract all evil to himself when he walks the planet? Because he's God's king and he's going to destroy evil. He's going to conquer evil. This is, you don't expect this unless God's king is here. This is not normal. Uh, And we shouldn't expect it to look anything quite like this in the 21st century. More acute than we get in the West? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. But not like this. C.S. Lewis, uh, while um, wisely uh, observed in, uh, he wrote a sort of comedic book, Screwtape, the Screwtape Letters. In the introduction, he observed, people tend to disbelieve or feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in evil spirits. And the demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors. There is a supernatural world, a malevolent world, and if humans say, no, there's no such thing, or become obsessed by it, that's great. What they don't want is for you and I to take it seriously, but soberly. Crucially here, though, uh, in the encounter, Jesus, this is, I guess, the main point of it all, his authority over evil. So the 20, verse 24, the impure spirit asks all these questions, what do you want with us? If you come to destroy us, somehow this one voice representing many, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And uh, verse 25, there's no contest. There's no dramatic, right, let me roll up my sleeves and, and, and do something. No expelliarmus, no, um, it's just... Shut up and get out. And the Spirit does. Just like, you know, a teacher dealing with a misbehaving child. You, shut up, get out. Yes, Gittins, you. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. I don't want to. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, get out. And there's a shriek and the Spirit goes. It's all in one sense quite unremarkable how Jesus deals with this. And let me just observe, it isn't just one random miracle. Mark, in his account of the life of Jesus, it's the first miracle he records. It's the first lesson that Jesus teaches his new disciples is this. It's the first public display of Jesus' authority is this. There's something deliberate about Mark recording it 
this way. And the point is, I think, Jesus, when he teaches, he liberates people from their bondage to evil. That's what's going on. Come back to that at the end. But uh, So he has authority over evil. Let me jump to this. Secondly, verses 29 to 34, he has compassion on the sick. Okay, verses 29 to 34, he has compassion on the sick. So as soon as they'd left the synagogue, verse 29, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Okay, so uh, the fishermen, these four fishermen, and they're, clearly their business is good. They live in a big house with their families and their in-laws. And um, Peter says, hey, my mother-in-law's sick. And Jesus doesn't do a cheap gag about, well, what do you want to do with your mother-in-law? Um, he says, okay, I'll go and sort it out. And he does. What's striking is how few details there are about it. Very few He went to her, he took her hand, he helped her up. That's it. Very straightforward. The first healing miracle Jesus does, it's private. It's of some unnamed woman. You know, might meet her in heaven. Oh, hello, what's your... Okay. When were you on the planet Earth? Oh, whereabouts? Oh, okay. Oh, did you actually meet Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you appear in any of the Gospels? Well, you know, I do actually. Um, I'm Peter's mother-in-law. Oh, what's your name? Well, I don't know. I've forgotten anyway. But, um, but it's not some great celebrity. It's not, I'll go and heal a public figure. Because it's not for public consumption at this point. Why does Mark record it this, this small little miracle here because I think he's just wanting to say this is what Jesus is like not public but he just pops into someone's house someone's sick and he heals that's who he is that's his compassion that's his kindness it's what he's like this Jesus and of course the, uh, the woman she gets up straight away and um, she began to wait on them I think the point of recording that is, this is pretty spectacular, the healing that takes place. It's not, um, let's call her Betty. Uh, How are you feeling, Betty? Well, I'm on the mend. was a bit rough, Jesus came, and now I'm on the mend. Told me to keep taking these things for um, the next seven days just to make sure it doesn't come back. No, it's boom. It's instant. Dramatic. It's done. And Tad Yedley, throughout Mark's Gospel, demonic he speaks healing he holds he touches he embraces there's something lovely about that physical touch now of course we can read something like this and it's extraordinary what goes on of course verses 32 to 34 the evening after sunset the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon possessed double whammy And verse 31, the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. He wouldn't let them speak. Why does he want the demons? They're his opponents. He's not going to let them speak for him. But uh, in a single night, he virtually banishes all forms of ailment in the whole town. And we could easily ask, um, how about now, Jesus? I'm, I'm not asking for the whole city 
maybe just my family now. And there comes a point, if you've not had it already, when you long to see Jesus' death-dispelling touch and take away. Because, um, forgive me for most of you who are young, we're all slowly crawling towards the grave and you get insulated when you are young. But the older you get and you go to more and more funerals and it's not of distant, it's not of grandparents, though you mourn them. Comes a point, it's not even of parents. It's your peers. It's your children. And you long for Jesus' death-dispelling power to be displayed. And we say, why don't we see it? And he says, you will. You will. His first coming... Uh, it's like a figure of color enters a black and white world. You can imagine a black and white film. There's just one figure of color. But wherever this figure of color goes, he brings color and he lights up everything and then he moves on and it reverts to black and white. He is the one who brings healing. He brings life wherever he goes. But he moves on and this world is still a fallen world. But what he's giving you there is a picture of what the next creation looks like when everything is in color. Or I don't know if you've been to a theme park recently. Most of you probably have, relatively recently. Uh, I hadn't for a while and uh, did over the summer. And uh, the novelty thing that seemed to me that was new that I hadn't been for a while, obviously you queue for an hour, two hours, four hours, whatever it is, for the, uh, for the, uh, the, the best rides. Uh, but now they all seem to have tellies. Um, so while you're in the queue, there's a TV or big screens showing you people who are currently on the ride. Um, I, you know, just, oh, look, you know, keep going, keep going. And you sort of, you, you, there's nothing else to do, is there? Um, well, you can talk to the people we're with, of course. But um, then you just, your eyes are drawn, and, you know, there's some teenagers clearly who go every other day to Thorpe Park. They know where the cameras are, so they, they come by, and they're running. Others, you know, not, they've never been there before. They're like, and of course, you get the old one. Um, and you think, well, do I want to go on this ride? Uh, but of course, the purpose, why do they have these tellies? Well, to say, what awaits you is really fun. You have a great time. Keep going in the queue. These accounts, just small details of Jesus' healing, they're here to say, keep going. This is just the queue. This is not the ride. The ride is in heaven. Just have a little hint here and now of how good that's going to be. He has authority over evil. He has compassion on the sick. Finally, let's finish here. Verse 39, his teaching sets people free. I'm not going to go through the whole of 35 to 39. We looked at that in detail last week. But just look at the last verse. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Hmm. Hmm. So remember, verses 21 to 39, one day in the life of Jesus. So Mark is all one thing. He wants us to read the whole bit together. And he says, the first thing I want you to know, Jesus liberates from evil. Then let me tell you about the healings. And you get a summary verse at that point, verse 34. Jesus healed many who had various diseases and he drove out many demons. We get Jesus' priority, which is to preach. And then verse 39, he preached in their synagogues, drove out demons, what about the healings? 
you stop? Why, why aren't they mentioned? You see, in a few weeks' time, chapter 3, he appoints his 12 disciples and says, go and preach the good news of the kingdom and drive out demons. Why do those two go together? And healings, not so much. And I think the point here is, preaching the gospel, preaching the message that Jesus is God's king, he can, conquer, he can pay for your sin, he can conquer death, take you into the new creation, he'll return again to judge this world. Preaching this good news, that liberates you from bondage to evil forever. Whereas it does not free you from suffering here and now. And you've got to know that difference. <laughs> Can I just say to you, practically, pastorally, that's really important. The day you become a Christian, you belong to Jesus, and you can never be enslaved in the same way. You cannot. But you become a Christian, you're not immune to sickness and disease and death in this world. And you just got to know that difference. The liberation, the expulsion of demons, it's a vivid illustration of what is going on whenever anyone becomes a Christian. We need liberating. And let me finish just say, we, we do sort of get this in different areas of life. I mean, most of us are the bondage, enslaved, I don't think so. We get it in some areas. Uh, I don't know um, if you have any experience of this. Uh, in my not immediate, wider family, uh, I watched over years uh, one family member, an alcoholic. It destroyed her family. It destroyed her life. And she died with her house physically crumbling around her. It just destroyed her and those close to her because she was in bondage to alcohol. And another family member who was addicted to drugs and it broke him. His family had to cut off all contact because he just stole, stole, stole everything from them. And eventually he ended up in prison. Now that is a vivid picture of being in bondage. But those are manifestations of what is true of all of us naturally. We're in bondage to evil. The striking thing is, if you engage with any of those sort of issues, uh, you'll know they all have 12 steps programs. And the 12 steps programs, they were all based uh, initially on Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, what's very striking was, let me, let me give you the first three. Um, here are the first three of any 12 steps program. They change alcohol for whatever it is. But if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, this is what you do. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, we made a decision to turn our will in our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Alcoholics Anonymous is a secular organization. But if you go, those are the first three steps. And that is recognizing what is true of all of us. Maybe not with alcohol, maybe not with drugs, but in, naturally we are born in bondage to evil. 
we're enslaved. We could never liberate ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. You recognize the problem? You recognize you need a savior? And you trust him? That's what you do. Now you can ask the alcoholic who is, you know, and they will tell you. Every alcoholic. You can say, how, how long have you been free? They will tell you. 17 years, 29 days, five hours. They will tell you because it's such a dramatic moment in their life. And you can ask them, are you ever tempted by alcohol? Yes. But I don't give in. You become a Christian. Are you tempted to do wrong things? Yes. Do you hear the accusation of Satan? Give up. You're never going to last. Come back. Yes. But if you belong to Jesus, he'll keep you to the end. He has liberated you from evil, from bondage that you could never escape yourself. And if you sit here this evening and think, that is weird language, I'm not used to that language, then I think Mark chapter 1 has done its job. And maybe we need, some of us in the West, a little waking up, that the salvation Jesus has wrought for us is supernatural and extraordinary. And not just take it for granted. Why do those two go together? Verse 39, he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, driving out demons. Because when you hear the message of Jesus Christ, when you put your trust in him, God's king, that is what happens. You are set free from bondage to a power you can never escape yourself. If you've never known that, you could do so tonight. Just come and speak. For many of us who've known that for years, what God has done for you is wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, we're not used to this language or don't use it commonly, maybe a little embarrassed about it in the 21st century West. But here is a reality and one that Mark in particular wants us to hear really clearly that trust in Jesus moves us from one kingdom to another, sets us free. Father, would we be thrilled with that, give thanks for that, embrace that, we ask in his name. Amen.